Hello, I am Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. In the last few weeks for this podcast, you might have noticed that a theme has appeared. Homelessness has crept back into the forefront of discussions here in the 905, especially in Hamilton, where the city has struggled to get a handle on the problem and proper solutions. The public reception to the city's policies has been, well, very controversial. In November, you may remember that the police dismissed homeless encampments in J.C. Beamer Park, leading to a large amount of criticism of excessive force and questioning if they were the best tool to use to solve this issue. More recently, a grassroots initiative of building tiny shelters for the homeless on the site of the former Sir Johnny McDonald School has shown real entrepreneurship and innovation to the problem. We recently had Ted McMeekin on to discuss the potential and hope for this initiative and how it might change the shape of Hamilton's approach to homelessness in the future. However, we were not finished talking about this complex issue. Homelessness often gets framed in terms of a housing issue, rather than the complex one of social needs and mental health illnesses that often exist in the community. We wanted to get a better understanding of what exactly the issues happening on the ground were and how we got here. To that end, we invited Denise Davey to the podcast. Denise is an award-winning journalist and former reporter for The Spec. She wrote a book titled Her Name Was Margaret, which outlined the tribulations of a homeless woman named Margaret. Denise has written numerous times on the issue of homelessness and its causes, and today we speak with her to better understand the issue, how we need to reframe our conversations on homelessness, if we are to solve it, and how to work to help those on the streets. Now, before we start the interview, we'd like to take a moment to remind you to subscribe to our Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee accounts. For a small fee, you'll help us tell stories like this one that are so important to the 905 region. Links are in the show notes. Thank you to Denise Davey for taking time from her uh, her schedule to come on to the, the 905 or podcast. Uh, Denise, very much uh, pleased to have you on and to talk about a perpetual issue that seems to play, uh, I don't want to say plague, but it affects not just Hamilton, but municipalities all over uh, the 905 region. Uh, and that is the issue of, well, homelessness. So Denise, thank you for, for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Joel and Roland. Really appreciate it. Now, the reason why we had you on is you wrote a book called Her Her Name uh, Her Name Was Margaret uh, that looks at the issue of homelessness from the, the, the point of view of just a single individual well, named Margaret. Let, let's start off with what there. Let's start, if you want to start off just by giving us a bit of insight into the book and just who Margaret was and, and kind of that that framework and maybe we'll, we'll go off from there. Yeah, so I met Margaret back when I was a reporter at the SPEC, and um, I decided to spend the night in the Wesley Centre Emergency Shelter, which is was located behind the uh, police station on Rebecca Street. They've since moved it. But um, I went there about 11 p.m. on a Sunday night, very cold night in January, and she walked in around midnight, and, and that, that moment changed my life because uh, I just knew I had to write a story on this poor, tragic, beaten-down woman uh, sitting across the room from me. And I had a, a couple of very uh, lucky uh, things that happened. One was that she agreed to speak to me. And she'd been going to the Wesley for almost 10 years and had never uh, really told anybody her story. And so she opened up to me. And the second thing was that um, the Hamilton Psychiatric Hospital agreed to give me access to her files, which was like 870 pages um, of files that took over 24 years that she spent in the HPH. Um, she, and today they probably would not uh, do that. They gave me access to them just to read in the library at the HPH. 
uh, later I met a family member and they actually uh, bought the files and then gave them to me. So that's, that's how I was able to access them. But the third lucky strike was that um, her family was just so generous. They, they didn't know who Margaret was. She was a mystery to them too. And um, they gave me full access. They sent me tons of photos, uh, allowed me to interview them. Um, and like I said, uh, just giving me the files himself. And so that allowed me to do this full, complete, very detailed look at her life from birth to death. Um, and that's when I discovered through Margaret's story, the larger issue of deinstitutionalization and what had happened to people when all the psychiatric hospital beds, 80% were closed across this country, sort of starting in the 60s and um, heading into the 80s and 90s. And then in the 80s and 90s, those closures overlapped with the um, closing of uh, the shutting down of affordable housing, sub supportive housing funds. Uh, so that was a, a major problem that those two were happening at the same time. And this is what I tell people is that this is a man-made problem. This is not, and I say that because there were probably a few women in government in the 60s, um, this is not something that just has happened. Um, this, this has been created, um, a, the systematic dismantling of our mental health system. It just went from having a system that wasn't perfect, but it was providing people like Margaret, who had a very complex form of schizophrenia. It was providing people like her with a roof over her head and three meals a day. And she actually wanted to stay in the hospital, but because of the bed closures, uh, they just kept moving her out into these very rundown, poorly supervised uh, boarding homes, uh, which are still problematic. They're now called residential care facilities. They're still being shut down because of safety and hygiene issues. And she would be moved into from a, ho a hospital where she had 24-7 care onto these uh, boarding homes where she virtually had nobody to look after her. And the outcome was obvious. You don't have to be a psychiatrist to see that this would just be a plan that would fall apart. So she would just end up on the streets. She'd get picked up by an ambulance and because um, she was so sick and taken back to the HPH. And uh, they'd just patch her up, as one of the social workers told me, um, get her health back to normal, put her on medication. A couple of weeks later, they'd put her back in one of these homes. And after 24 years, she finally just said, um, that's it. I'm not going back. And she, when I met her, she'd been homeless almost 10 years. How common is this situation? Uh, you know, like, cause I think there's a, uh, public perception that mental illness is a, is a, it, it's not really a, 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 an, it might be an issue with some homelessness or, or just maybe just give us a sense like how, how widespread is this, mm -hmm. is Margaret's case amongst it, the homeless population of Hamilton? One of the most shocking statistics I found was both in terms of the mental and physical health of homeless people. I knew it wasn't good, obviously, when you're living that kind of rough lifestyle. Um, but at Co Canadian uh, Association of Mental Health, they're, um, they're, they say up to 70% of people on the streets have uh, some kind of mental illness. And I've done several interviews in homeless shelters, and I've talked to a lot of people who are homeless, and I'd have to say it's even 80%. Um, and I bet shelter staff would tell you the same. It's, um, uh, it's uh, de depression and anxiety are the most common mental illness or mental health problem within the general population. And within homeless population, they're huge. And for obvious reasons, these are people that every day is about survival. 
And, you know, people say, well, why don't they do this or look for a job or get a haircut or whatever? They're just thinking, where am I going to sleep tonight so I don't die? Um, where am I going to go for my next meal? Um, you know, right now, especially we're having this long, very cold, snowy winter and literally people are sleeping outside. And um, so the yeah, the amount of level of mental illness among the homeless people is really through the roof. When, and a lot of it's not diagnosed. So, I mean, like, because I think the, the public perception is, well, at least, you know, a, a common refrain that we hear from uh, political leadership on this matter is these people do it to themselves. They need to, you know, need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and, and go get a job and whatever phrase you, you want to throw in there. Uh, that it's, the idea is they've done this to themselves. They get what they deserve, I think, is the underlying uh, consensus towards this. And what you're telling me is that, you know, this isn't necessarily the case. You know, if you're dealing with... If you have 80% of a population that's dealing with mental illness, severe mental illness, um, that's not a simple case of, you know, dust, dust yourself off, go into a, a job, get an application and fill it out. It's, you know, th th these are complex needs that need to be addressed. There's a lot. Yeah, that's right. That's why this, uh, it's called Housing First Initiative, which I'm sure you've heard about. Um, that's why it's been so successful because they not only provide uh, housing or shelter or roof over their head, they look at the things they need in terms of um, psychiatrists, uh, budgeting problems, uh, childcare if they're a single mom, um, issues with the courts. They look at the wraparound services and tailor those to each individual. And that's why the Housing First is so important. And the other thing is, is getting them before they, it becomes embedded as this lifestyle. Because with Margaret, she was on the street so long. Even at one point, I write in a book about her lovely boyfriend Bob Dixon who was just a sweetheart and took her into his apartment for a year but she would just in the middle of winter she'd just bolt and just take off for a couple of days and be sleeping outside because she was just uh, it, it was just part of her lifestyle and I mean it, they're, they're they're not able to really make you know really healthy rational decisions and that's part of their illness so um really need to understand that about people that uh this isn't. This is something I need to get across to people. It's that homelessness is not a choice because choices are made when you have healthy options and you're 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 in a healthy place to make those decisions. Those that's a, those are choices. It's not when you're acting out of desperation and and you're not really able to think about really well thought plans. Like there's there's no such thing as sort of long-term planning when you're homeless. It's like day to day, sometimes hour to hour. And um, yeah, I sometimes get the feeling that they just, some people think that they're just like having fun camping, as you say, too lazy. I have to think though, from the, my experience, like most people I do think that they are, I do think most of the public are concerned about people sleeping outside and they just don't know what to do. You see, I mean, like literally, I think uh, not last week, the week before, the Hamilton Council was discussing this, and Mayor Eisenberger kind of belabored the point. Well, well, some of these people they just don't want to live indoors. You know, that the, these are the you know the kind of hardcore of people. We're never going to find a solution for them. So, the kind, I mean, perhaps I'm being slightly unfair to him, but I don't think I'm being very unfair. Um, the kind of gist is. You know, we can't do anything about these people. They're, they're 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 just too much hard work. So you know, any solution you come up with that that suggests uh, an improvement is well, don't bother. I mean, I guess there's a valid element of truth in amongst the the element I, f I feel is 
not which is give up i don't accept that part of it but these are people with all kinds of challenges and and you know you know and particularly if given the choice between living say in a tent when we had the whole tent debate a few months ago uh and living in in um or, or spending your nights in a shelter i think i'd probably choose the tent um you know yeah. uh, so uh, i don't quite know where i'm going with this point other than than uh you know the, these assumptions seem um yeah. the assumptions of just well you know this is difficult so give up seems like something we should be challenging i, I don't know what do you what, what do you think about that i do think that and that, i guess that's what frustrates me the most i i think our city councillors uh council thinks that they're um, they are trying their hardest and they're working with the information in front of them. But I think what they need is to get out from behind the desks and just go down there and not just one visit, um, but several. Um, because if you're going to do your research and make a decision and you're in this very powerful position, do your research. You know, that's mm-hmm. as a journalist, that's I do my research before I write a story. Um, and I think the thing is, once they understood the, the level of illness, mental and physical, among uh, people living on the streets, and as you say, uh, Roland, the, the shelters, um, I've write, write about this a lot where, um, you know, the people have, especially women, have experienced violence and, and been robbed in shelters. Um, they're deadly afraid of the virus, and they were even before COVID. And it's a valid fear. They're, like they said, they're making that decision from a very sound, rational perspective that um, it isn't necessarily safe. I, I read a study in, I think it was Toronto shelters, 50 Toronto shelters right now are in outbreak mode. And I read something on Twitter that the, the majority of all the men's shelters in Hamilton are in outbreak mode as well. So, um, you know, they weren't safe before. Uh, completely, and people were getting robbed, and there were thefts, and 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 that's not because of that. I don't want to blame, lay any of the blame on shelters. They are so poorly funded. You know, um, I did a story, a column for the Star, a couple of weeks ago, and I said, you know, we need this, this, and this. We need separate rooms. The way that now our hospitals, after the uh, outbreaks there, have you know infection control layouts where everybody's in single rooms. And we need to have more single rooms in shelters and people that are a safe distance apart. But I've been inside the shelters. There's no space. <laughs> and so it would take money to, to do that. But um, in the long run, this is the frustrating thing. It would cost us much less because studies have shown it could be anywhere from like 50,000, 60,000 up to 120,000 a year to keep somebody on the street. Well, I was just going to say, coming back to that, that two things occurred to me. One, that... As a society, we have incredibly short memories. This wasn't always a state of affairs. This is a relatively, in the in the big scheme of history, a new state of affairs. You know, and the the words we used to work, use for homeless people like hobo and tramp. I mean, they're not compliments, right. but they were. You know, these were itinerant people who would go from place to place, uh, often looking for you know odd jobs or whatever. It was not a permanent population of people who lived right. on the streets and yeah. uh, and they're all men. And this too. and the, yeah, exactly. There were no female hobos um why did this happen why did why did going going back you know from the 60s to the 80s why why was there such a dramatic change you talked about the the closures of the psychiatric hospitals but what was the logic behind that and what went wrong yeah that the jumping off point the reason for it was and it was a positive thing was the introduction of these psychotropic drugs where clorazepam and those sort of uh, medications came onto the market 
And the first time in the history of civilization, there was anything to manage mental illness symptoms. So that was all seen as a positive thing. And, and the deinstitutionalization was seen as a positive thing. I mean, I, I quote people like Jimmy Carter in my book saying, like, this is a, a wonderful thing. Like, they, even with a physical health problem, they've shown more healthy to heal at home with community supports. So you're in the, you know, your own surroundings. You've got your loving family around you. You get more independence. Um, and so it was open. It was welcomed with open arms. People were, were thrilled this was happening. And they, like I said, they didn't follow through on the community-based support. So the plan was move the people out and then put mental health clinics in the neighborhoods where the people would be relocated, which a lot of it was inner city, um, hire outreach workers, social workers, nurses, uh, paramedics, everything to visit the home so they'd have a full wraparound service for all these, all these people. Um, and none of that happened. They just moved people into these homes that were completely unsupervised. Um, the one social worker, Pat Saunders, I talked to who knew Margaret and was in the HPH when she was there. She said she went and talked to the boarding home operation and said, could you just please, if I know you can't do everything, but can you just make sure that she takes her medication? And he said, you think I'm a psychiatrist? No. Um, so, you know, with, with schizophrenia, especially complex form like Margaret had, medication is seriously important. So as soon as she went off her medication, she would just spiral downwards and um, wouldn't eat, wouldn't come home. Um, so one of these homes that she was in served, uh, here's an example, cold cereal and cold water for breakfast and then moved everybody out of the home by 9 a.m. and locked the door. And there was no rules to say they couldn't do that. Um, five, six o'clock, they let them all in, regardless of the weather, and um, you know, served them some minor meal, probably totally lacking in nutrition for dinner. And um, you know, they'd have a bed to sleep in. And one one of the homes had just single cots all lined up in the living room and actually were touching each other. So there were like eight of them. So no privacy and nothing was regulated. It was just unbelievable that they would go from the sort of 24-7 care they had in hospitals to virtually nothing. It, and it, this was just allowed to happen. So, it, yes, it all started because of the medication. It just strikes me that it just seems that we, we just we're – lo we're looking for an excuse just to get this out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. you start the, – the medication comes in and says, hey, okay, we've got this. So that's the solution. Okay, pump them full of drugs and – you know, yeah. give them to the charity of uh, of strangers. Uh, it was kind of public policy almost. And then, and I say the, the out of sight, out of mind mentality because flash forward to uh, last year with the the tent encampments in uh, J C Beamer Park here in Hamilton. You know, the the, the circumstances with COVID, as you said, uh, the uh, pandemic uh, virus raging through mission uh, missions and shelters, and you know that yeah. rightfully so, they're concerned about their own health. Understandable. Uh, there are people who are are struggling now because of uh, uh, supports are ending for the pandemic, whatever. And the, the attitude wasn't this, you know, a compassionate. This is a problem. We need to solve it. It was mm -hmm. sending the police clear them out because we can't ignore them if they're in a public park. It was kind of it was right. kind of the, the. I'm not going to say it was the official policy. I don't have any reason to say that, but it was just the attitude of that was just we, mm -hmm. we can't ignore people if they're in a public park. We can't ignore them if they're in a in a they're ca camping in the park, um, you know. And, 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 am I am I am I over am I overreaching with that analysis of our attitude towards the homeless? So it's just let's keep them out of sight, out of mind. 
Oh, no, that's, I mean, the whole problem started because of the, the tents. There were, wasn't all this talk and, although, I mean, the COVID certainly brought out the issue, but there wasn't as much of outrage um, when they were safely hidden down our alleyways and, and stuff that were uh, just that they were made visible with the, with the tents. And yeah, and they started showing up in, in our parks again, out, out of desperation. But one of the things I heard about the encampments was that they, the, these staff would go and let people know two or three times that, that they were going to be torn down. So number one, and they'd offer them housing on the spot. So number one, they didn't tell them when they were going to come back and actually bulldoze it. Um, but even if they had, it, it's not like, you know, they'd say, well, I'll just check my schedule, see if I'm open January 27th. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's just, uh, it, like I said, there, there can't, there's not like sort of long-term planning. There's not just mental illness. There's addiction problems in there. And some of them self-medicate because of their, because they're not on uh, medication for schizophrenia and that sort of issues. But um well, I know what the counselor Nan was suggesting was um, so on those lead up to it, they would have somebody there from housing uh, supports to say, you know, we could take you to housing now. Let's go. And they'd say, well, you know, I don't want to go. That was that became their community or they had a, a partner with them. And there's no sort of partner shelters with that allow partners and, or couples. So. But what Councillor Nan was 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 asking for was the day of when they come and actually tear down the tents. Can you have somebody then at that point who's could put them in housing? Because and they don't. They weren't. It was just and, a tear down. And it seems so obvious. And and yeah, yeah I'm not. I'm not going to defend. I'm not going to defend the police because it seems that some of the things that went on were, were you know, at the very especially, minimum troubling. But especially Toronto. It should. Yeah. It should never get to when it gets to the point that the police are going in you've already failed a thousand times yeah. over you know there, there's yeah. so many things that should happen before that uh, yeah. there's no business sending the you know uh, the police into you know uh, mm. there may be all kinds of challenges with these people but they're not you know you don't need to send the army in here guys mm. you know they're not well, they're not sitting in downtown Ottawa with trucks say you know mm -hmm. you can actually move them easier than that <laughs> yeah yeah um, well, yeah I mean it it, it it's really, I mean, I think far more criticism should ultimately go to, to uh, City Hall and their handling yeah. than the police who just shouldn't have been there in the first place, uh, I guess, is kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, now, there's been, uh, just in the last weeks, there's been, um, we, we interviewed Ted McMeekin about the, the HATS project, the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters. Um, and I mean, that, that seems... Uh, it seems on the surface to someone who's not an expert in the field, like, well, this is a great idea. Uh, what's your uh, take on that project? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I, I think it's a very positive step forward. And I, I listened to the delegation with uh, Julia on um, last week, the emergency community service meeting. And, uh, you know, uh, the thing that struck me is when she said we could basically have these things up and built within weeks. And I just look at, um, I mean, two homeless people I know right now, there's a woman, if anybody's gone for a walk down Bayfront Trail, there's a woman who set up a big tarp with grocery carts and wood, and she's, she's literally just living beside the trail there in the, you know, some of the temperatures, you know, that's 30 below this some nights. Um, and uh, I just think, we need to put all our resources on getting people like that into, into some sort of housing. And, and I know it's, it's temporary, and it's not, you know, the ultimate solution. But I mean, 
you know, when it's actual life and death and survival situations like that, yeah, I, I'm totally in favor of them. And uh, and for people like the woman in the uh, on the Bayfront Trail, and and there's a fellow I was talking about earlier. Uh, I'm sure everybody's seen him. He's living in a pile of garbage on, beside York Boulevard. Um, you know, it's not going to be an easy sell. They they often have rejected shelters because a lot of people with mental illness um, have a real fear of crowded, chaotic spaces and loud noises, and they can't stand a lot of people being around them. And so, you know, it, it may take some some doing to get them into that kind of shelter, but uh, I honestly think it's just, it would be a fantastic thing. I think they'd fill up pretty quickly because so many people need it. Um, stepping on... Uh, Stepping on that uh, or off of that that note, what what should uh, municipalities in the 905 be looking at doing to address this uh, address the issue rather rather than just funding? I think because I think we're, we've agreed that we're past just funding mission shelters and just putting beds, but like in terms of like a real concrete like a path to reintegrate these individuals back into society to give them a mm-hmm. path to not just survive but to actually thrive. Yeah. How, right. how, how, how should we be changing our approach to this problem? Well, that's because the problem is we're in, we're, we're in crisis mode. And um, that's to rework that around. And I know Hamilton has a plan to end homelessness. I can't remember the year, but um, I, I, I wish it was sooner. But um, the, to get to a point where they're actually thriving, um, it, you know, it, it's going to take some time. But um I look at uh, Medicine Hat Alberta that's uh, ended homelessness and uh, the country of Finland. Uh, there's a city in Italy that doesn't even have psychiatric hospitals. They, and they have no one living on the streets because they're so packed with community supports. It's just all community supports. And they have, they treat the person like they're a whole person. They don't just, it's not just about shelter and, and a roof over the head, their head. It's, a, you know... They have jobs. Uh, they have a whole uh, center for community center that they go, people go in and um, do arts and crafts, uh, and you can actually buy their their things there, and they and and the, the money goes back to them, and um, that sort of all sort of wraparound services like that. But um, yeah, we need to get out of just managing, barely managing it in in crisis mode. And we can't do that unless we have things like the tiny homes where we have we we do have resolved the life and death issues that are happening now and get people off the streets. I mean, but, one of one of the problems is is that you know institutions institutions government institutions are so big and unwieldy and so impersonal that yeah. people just fall between the cracks. And this isn't just to do with homelessness; it's to do with healthcare as a whole, within to do with mental health in particular. Yeah. And it's like, how do we solve that? And it's that kind of holistic approach, isn't it? Where it's like, you can't send someone to this. And and again, to be fair, I know there was a a reorganization at Hamilton City Hall um, a few years back uh, when they reorganized um, the, uh, I'm not sure of my facts here, but I know they had a reorganization that was partly aimed at doing that exact thing of kind of stopping the extent to which people had to go to 10 different offices to do 10 different things when it could all be done in one place. Great, yeah. great initiative, but 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 clearly not, you know, entirely doing yeah. the job that we need to be done. I mean, and how much Definitely of this? I mean, ultimately, if we had better mental health care in this province, how much do you think that would be? That's almost like the first, you know, if you're going to put the the horse in front of the cart, mm-hmm. 
mental health care is the issue and Ontario's mental health, I mean, mm-hmm. in Canada as a whole, we don't really have a mental health care no. system and per be- se. Before I wrote about, um, I did a lot of research on children's mental health. And one of the, uh, the places I visited was, um, I went out to Vancouver because in 2004, they became the first province in Canada to set up a province-wide children's mental health uh, policy strategy. And it really reminds me of the homelessness issue because they needed to stop just being in crisis mode and switch their services around so that kids were getting help sooner and they were more community-based. And everybody said, oh, God, that's going to be impossible because... You know, you're going to have kids, so many kids falling through the cracks because you're like moving out all these um, emergency services. But they did it. And, um, you know, different governments have come along. They don't have the perfect system yet, but they certainly had a very positive one. And they were a role model for for other provinces, but nobody followed up on it. But, yeah, what I was trying to say is that our mental health system that exists for the homeless population is just as bad for the general population and, and people with homes. It's Kids are still waiting 18 months to two years to get into a child psychiatrist. Um, I mean, it's been so much worse during the pandemic. Uh, uh, kids being diagnosed with eating disorders and anxiety has just gone through the roof. And that's I mean, a whole, the whole other issue. The, whole, the, the system such as it is, is mm-hmm. incredibly overloaded mm-hmm. before COVID, triply overloaded during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and, think and with it's, the it's homeless, not... the reason they got away with it was because they don't have a voice. They don't mm-hmm. like I've compared it to cancer treatment. And I said, you know, if, if the government announced, as they did with um, the psychiatric hospitals, that we're closing down, you know, half the treatment facilities uh, within five years or so, and people would just have to fend for themselves or they offered an alternative, which never happened. If any of that happened, there'd be a massive outcry. They'd vote everybody out and get in a new government, but people who are homeless don't vote and tend tend, tend to not vote as much, and they tend to have um, no cut ties with the families, um, and so they're not they don't they're not as able to ho- hold them as accountable. So well, that's the sad part. It, it's it strikes me as a as a contradiction. I mean, I, we 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 constantly come back to the issue of mental health with uh, the homeless and just in general. Um, but people are going to remember a few weeks ago we had the you know the Bell Let's Talk Day, and you know there was all this oh we you know we have to break down the stigmas of of mental health and whatnot and that mm-hmm. that and our, you know isn't it great? Yet we are talking about the fundamental need of we need to actually not it's not so much just talking anymore. I think we we all understand mental health is a, an important aspect of our lives and our well mm-hmm. our well being as individuals. Mm-hmm. We we don't we just. We don't treat it as important as our physical health. You're right. You're right. But you know, if somebody said to mm-hmm. cancer uh, patients, "You're on your own. Good luck to you. Pay for the the chemotherapy on yeah. your own." And oh, good luck finding a, a clinic or a nurse that's going to put the needle in your arm or whatever have you. We'd be outraged. We just you know that's right. unconscionable. Yet we don't care about somebody who says, "I'm having a hard time." Focusing, I don't know what the problem is. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a diagnosis. I just have a hard time focusing. I have a hard time keeping my my life in order. Yeah. For whatever reason, um, we kind of say, oh, you know, again, it comes down to, oh, you did this to yourself. You know, just mm-hmm. get your get your act together and, and get a uh, get on with stiff life. Stiff upper lip. Right. Yeah. Right. And that yeah. you know, that 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 stiff upper lip, and you know, just you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. Right. And we kind of frown on the notion of of actually asking for help. Um, mm-hmm. 
and there's no there's no pressure to to our our our, insti- our political institutions our our government to say we mm-hmm. need to change this like you need to include better holistic yeah. uh, I think you know a, a new approach to addressing people's uh, I think just healthcare yeah. in general in this in this province that was just more of a rant than an actual question <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah and I, I'm gonna definitely jump need more attention on that though yeah <laughs> yeah and, and you know this this the stigma has. I'm not saying that the stigma is entirely gone. The stigma has decreased a huge amount. I'm willing to, I've said before on, on this podcast, and I'm willing to say as someone, you know, I'm in my second decade of mental health stuff myself. Fortunately, you know, but for the grace of God, I'm okay. I got a home and, I, you know, I right. do stuff. But but it's been an eye-opener because what I've realized is there are two, you know, we think of OHIP as covering our health. And yeah, it does if you've got a physical thing, um, but if you've got a mental thing, it really doesn't. You know, it, yeah. it's your GP can give you medication and your GP can refer you to a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of amazing stuff. There's incredible, incredible, incredible staff who I just cannot speak about highly enough. Mm-hmm. However, it's so compared with how we treat uh, the body, it's, mm-hmm. it's so incredibly yeah. um Insufficient. I feel like we've moved a little bit ahead. Like there are not not that this is worth a ton, but I do feel like even with high profile people, celebrities coming forward and talking about their depression and that, yeah. I do feel that's breaking a little bit of the stigma. And people are generally talking about it, but the services still aren't there. We still don't have. Um, I mean, they say it should be uh, far more uh, far first, far more community based services, but. Um, far more attention. I, I think it's something like 20% of the health budget is on mental health funding, which is un- un- unbelievable. It should be like far more than that. So yeah, we just kind of feel like, I remember so a friend of mine, and, yeah, a friend of mine said, said years ago, sorry, and I'm, I'm talking over you very rudely. A friend of mine said years ago, you know, like everybody should have a therapist. It doesn't matter if you, if you've got a problem yeah. or not, everybody should have it. Yeah. Like you have a GP, you have, yeah. you know, we have the, we have a dentist, you have a therapist. Um, and maybe you never choose to see that therapist, but it's available to you when you when you need it. And in fact, in that that's just not something that happens. Um, you know, most people would have to pay for that, and that ain't cheap. You know, um, and, yeah, and you know yeah. we have CMHA and all, all these amazing organisations, um, mm-hmm. uh, and you know just just locally, like Joe Brandt uh, does amazing things, but. Um, but it's it, it's it's kind of papering over the cracks rather than a real system uh, mm-hmm. per se. In it, yeah, yeah. And to bring that back to the homeless, actually, Roland, mm-hmm. um, a mental health act. Um, when I look at this this fellow on York Boulevard, and I just think, like, are you kidding? That like uh, the mental health act that says you know we can't do if you know unless they're a danger to themselves or others, uh, you can't sub- admit them to a hospital, and he. Clearly, to sleep outside of this temperature, you're clearly a danger to yourself. It's yeah. clearly it, he could <laughs> absolutely facto. freeze. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's it's so sad to see that you know the the year way way back when I interviewed Margaret and the terrible situation she was in, and I think like here we are today in 2022, still have people, and they say possibly uh, they said 30 35, but it's probably like 100 who are literally sleeping outside in this weather. Like we should be far more um, angry and intolerant about that. What strikes me interesting about this conversation, uh, looking back on the last half hour, is how we've gone. You know, we're kind of talking a bit about housing, and now we switch. Like the, the root cause of this is our mental health and our social safety nets to to catch people as they fall through. And I, you know, I just 
the last kind of point I have before we, we have to bring this episode to a close is just as much as we focus on housing, and we do talk about housing a lot on this podcast uh, for various reasons, I find that our, our political leaders look at housing as the solution to homelessness, right? Oh, we're going to, if we build more... Uh, Which afford- it partly is. It, yeah. it partly is, but I mean, I think we've but touched upon, the, like, the fact is you can give somebody a house, but if they themselves say, I can't live in there, I can't pay the mortgage on it, I can't pay the rent, I can't pay, mm. you know, I, I have all these other issues... Yeah. To, to sort out, supports. you know, are, it's just like you're setting people up to fail again. And I, I think part of it is this, instead of investing in the, in a building, it's part of it, absolutely. We need to start investing in people, mm-hmm. giving them the networks to say, okay, you know what? You, your, your life, your life, your life is secure. You, you are yeah. like that hierarchy of needs yeah kind of thing okay you know what you're, you're the security of your person is safe you're you're, you're safe you're safe from violence from the from yeah. the elements etc fine now we need to start helping you get actualized as a person you, you know your 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 illness taken care of or managed uh properly mm-hmm. and then how do you want to give you options to live your life how yeah. how you see fit um yeah you know and i just don't know if i just don't know if we're, if we're quite there yet in terms of our political mm-hmm initiative or our social will mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well they it i do feel like the people um who i said like the guy on york boulevard um they're just accepted as the throwaways they're just we've we've given up we we've convinced ourselves there's there's nothing we can do if they won't go in shelters there's no other options um they're they've made this uh decision to sleep outside from a healthy uh perspective um, you know, that they've, that a hundred different things have been tried and it's been rejected. And none of those are true. None of those are true. They're all, um, you know, they've just decided from a, a point of, of ignorance really that, um, that, that homelessness can't be solved. And so they're willing to just walk away. But I think there's nothing more shameful to a country, a city, a province than having people sleeping on our streets. It, it's, it's absolutely uh, shameful. It's really the, just a sad, sad, tragic situation. And, and yeah, it is. I think you're exactly right that these things exist because we as a society have accepted that they're going to exist and that and they're too difficult to, to fix. Happen. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it, it, you know, when you, when, you, when you change your mentality and say, this, this is not tolerable in this day and age, this is not, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the will is there, this, these problems will be solved. Yeah. I quote uh, Charles Krauthammer, who was a Washington Post columnist. I quote him in my book as saying, 30 years ago, if you saw somebody laying on the street, you'd rush over because you thought he was a, a, a victim of a car accident or something, and you'd get him help. And now you just walk over him because you know he lives there. And it did used to be less tolerant, tolerated. Like we didn't used to allow this sort of thing. And now it's just, well, there's nothing you can do. Well, there's we kind a lot of- we can do. We kind of got, we bought into this idea that, well, many of us bought, bought into the idea that we were overtaxed and or that we couldn't afford or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, why is it that my, my, my parents and grandparents who had far fewer kind of luxuries mm-hmm. uh, than I do felt that they could pay for what was needed to right. keep people off the streets? Yeah. You know, when when did we sort of you know when did we when did we buy this myth that we don't have yeah. the money anymore? Uh, I don't you know. Yeah, and if you if you don't if there's if there's just so surrounded by so many problems that they can't even think about the problems that homelessness, then worry about your taxes <laughs> mm-hmm. because to to keep someone on the street because 
you know, like the social navigator program is an expensive program, much needed. Uh, that's your tax dollars. They go around and help the chronically homeless. And, um, you know, we shouldn't be needing them. We shouldn't be needing people going in and bulldozing uh, tents out of the cities and the cost of that. Um, because, you know, and we wouldn't need it if we had proper housing for people and proper supports. So, yeah. and it would you know, be much cheaper. Like Medicine Hat estimates they're spending about 24000 a year to keep people housed. Versus just you know what? huge, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I remember hearing a statistic years ago about how much we pay for a, a very small number of people because they are so difficult to manage yeah. Yeah. living on the streets. Uh, you know, yeah. it's such a false economy in, in every way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for what? Just think, to, to perpetuate the problem. I think we're we'll have to end it end it there because we're coming up on the end of the yeah. of the episode. But um, yeah, I mean, clearly this is a, a huge issue that we're uh, we're only scratching the surface with in this forty minutes. So um, I, I think as we see, as we look and see how the the hats initiative works in Hamilton, uh, we'll probably want to revisit this uh, later throughout the year and just see how that how that unfolds and what that what that looks like it'll shape into. So uh, Denise, we'll probably reach out to you again at some point in the future and have, have you back on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns or ideas for future episodes to our email info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.